What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, animals living secret lives. From secret societies to secret nighttime powers to secretly being a living animal in the first place, these critters are not letting you in their club unless you know the handshake. Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, if you stab a rock, does it not bleed? Joining me today is one of my favorite science writers who has written amazing articles about all sorts of creatures for the New York Times, and she is currently working on a book for Atlas Obscura about some of the world's weirdest critters. Welcome, Kara Giamo. Welcome! I'm so excited to have you on. I'm a little starstruck because I often refer to your articles when I'm researching for the show, so it's both weird and really exciting to be talking to you in person on the show. (laughs) That's really flattering. I'm so glad that I've uh, helped to inspire such a wacky and fun show with my writing. Well, thank you so much. And speaking of which, I used some of your articles to uh, help with the research and inspire this very episode, including one you wrote on giraffes. So in this first section, I want to talk about the secret social lives of mammals. These are secret mammalian societies because we often are very, we're very like egocentric, very primate centric, where we think, you know, yeah, primates are smart, gorillas, chimps, humans, elephants, and dolphins, sort of like this. Yeah, you're smart too. But then when we start to talk about other animals, we're like, well, they couldn't be that complicated. They can't have like friends like humans do. That doesn't make sense. They're just big, dumb, glumping things like giraffes, (laughs) which don't seem like they'd be very smart. They have 
this huge long neck and this itty bitty head perched on top of this impossibly long body. And it just doesn't seem like they'd be someone interested in forming social bonds. But in fact, they may have something like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I just want to say that in my experience, a lot of the history of animal research is, and plant research, to be honest, and research into any living things is um, scientists starting from the point of view that, oh, this thing can't be all that smart or all that talented. And then realizing over the course of, you know, years or decades that, oh, actually, all these creatures can do all these incredible things that we didn't know about. And they are smart, whether it's smart socially or smart with their bodies or just smart being able to survive or in ways that we haven't even thought of yet. So that's a really cool uh, part of looking into this area of research. But yeah, with giraffes, I wrote about this recently for The New York Times about sort of secret giraffe social lives. And uh, yeah, it's true. They used to have this reputation of being really solitary, um, but more and more researchers are seeing that they have really complex family groups. It's sort of like a female-centric society where moms and kids and grandmothers and grandkids will hang out. Um, they do things like they, they mourn their dead. It's really complex. Um, it's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, my perception of giraffes, uh, probably also based on sort of childhood stories about giraffes, is they're very aloof. They're nonchalant, just with their head in the clouds, kind of literally eating, eating leaves up in the trees with, without much of a care <laughs> in the world. But they, yeah, they, they seem to actually have these social bonds. And like you said, it seems to be sort of this matriarchal society. So female giraffes forming friendships, uh, having, a having an emotional reaction to the death of like a calf where they stand over it for, for many hours. Uh, they seem to sometimes even engage in alloparenting, which is when uh, a non-parent will look after another person, <laughs> another person, another giraffe's uh, offspring. So they babysit each other's calves. And so this is something that is just recently sort of been observed. Researchers had to look at like their specific spot pattern to ID them because it's sort of like a thumbprint where when you have a spot pattern, you can tell one individual from the other. But uh, because they're so because they have that such such a like a dolce vita kind of laid back <laughs> lifestyle, it was, I guess, hard to tell that, yeah, they are in fact hanging out with each other and they do prefer the company of certain friends. It's just we didn't think like a giraffe and didn't observe them from the point of view of a giraffe. And so we never really caught that. Yeah, totally. I think that's something that's also a little bit egocentric about us is that when a creature doesn't live a lifestyle that's recognizable to us, we just sometimes kind of assume that it's not interesting or not worth studying. Um, the researchers I talked to for this, yeah, pointed out that giraffes especially are quite slow um, and quite quiet. They don't have a lot of vocalizations. And so since humans are like really fast paced and many of us in our lives and we are constantly talking. Constantly talking. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> it's not like I do that for a living. Imagine a giraffe studying us. They would be like, they can't possibly be doing anything meaningful. They're just chattering constantly. We don't know what they're saying. And so we don't care. Yeah. How can they have time to think they, they're spending all their time just like yammering on and on, making meat sounds <laughs> with their little face flaps? It's very strange. <laughs> making podcasts like we can't <laughs> we can't handle this. Um, 
but yeah, so you're you're right. Once they figured out how to distinguish individual drafts by their spot patterns, which took a while, um, they started to see that there were these really strong connections. Um, the daycare thing is so the allo parenting is so impressive to me because I know that it's quite hard for humans to get together and figure out childcare. Yeah. Um, so the fact that giraffes can do this is is pretty sweet. Maybe we should be looking even more carefully about how they pull this off. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of a constant theme on the show, too. Whenever I tell a guest about a case of allo parenting, like, hey, look how bats and, and giraffes and you know, all, all these animals will sort of help each other rear their offspring. They're like, that seems like a really good idea, especially parents <laughs> who come on. They're like, hey, could we do that too? Maybe <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm not a parent, so I'm not going to claim to understand the right. struggle. But uh, it is interesting to think of having someone say, yeah, I can't find a babysitter. And you just say to them, oh, well, have you thought of finding a bunch of bats that could maybe right. like vomit food into your child's mouth every once in a while and sounds it would be good fine. to me i'm gonna find a colony yeah. of vampire bats and be like could you just bomb a little bit of that nice blood into my baby's mouth when i'm not around it's got a lot of iron a lot of nutrients yeah so <laughs> there's this uh idea called the grandmother hypothesis which is that in certain social animals long-lived females can help their offspring uh, and grand offspring survive. And so you'll see in some animals, especially like elephants, but you also see it in giraffes where females will live long past their reproductive years. And so the idea is there is an advantage to this because they can actually offer help to the younger generations and ensure that their their offspring and, and offspring's offspring actually survive. And this often... Uh, will lead to more complex socialization because you you basically are able to retain more knowledge because you have an extra generation hanging around passing on wisdom and knowledge and and whether I'll, we don't know exactly yet like how this works in giraffes i think the uh, even knowing that giraffes have this capability is relatively new so who knows what hidden giraffe wisdom is getting passed on from giraffe to giraffe. Probably things like the best kinds of throat lozenge leaves to eat because... <laughs> yeah, imagine being a giraffe with a sore throat. You Ugh. would definitely want to get your heads together with some other giraffes and figure yeah. out how to fix that. <laughs> and it's not just giraffes, I think, that uh, are very surprising when you learn how socially intelligent they are. One of the cutest animals that looks sort of like an overgrown rodent and uh, is but doesn't seem like it has much going on in terms of intelligence are otters which mm. you know there are many different species of otters i think the most famous is probably the sea otter because they're just they're the cutest otter i mean i love all otters i try not to judge based on appearance but i think it is pretty objective that sea otters are the cutest ones <laughs> just those little cheeks yeah sea otters are extremely cute i actually as a child um, at a summer camp, kidnapped a stuffed animal sea otter <gasps> wow. because I couldn't resist how cute he was. And I didn't want to think about him like in the winter with no one to snuggle him. Yeah. Um. So I brought him home. A stuffed sea, you kidnapped a stuffed uh, sea Yeah, not sea a real one. Not a real one. Animal one. I think that's called um, shoplifting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I stole him from a like a camp toy bin. I um, see. Yeah. So. Not That's technically a shop, but also probably not technically a good thing to do. Otter yeah, napping. Totally. And the most adorable crime. Nothing. 
the most adorable crime <laughs> I've ever heard. I'm not an arc. Don't worry. I won't turn you into the otter police. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they are they are adorable. Um, I think a lot of people are aware of this otter fact, which is that sea otters will use rudimentary tools to use in aiding them to crack open the shells of shellfish that they like to eat. So either it's a little rock they keep on their tummies that they just kind of use as their favorite little uh, abalone shell smasher, or they also use available rocks in the water. So if there's a reef or, or a sort of rocky coastline, they'll smash their shellfish against those rocks as well. Um, but that's not the only instance of otter cleverness. They also use kelp forests uh, or even human constructions, both to kind of keep as a nursery for their offspring. So they just like kind of bundle their young up in uh, some kelp or put them on uh, a, a boat or something so that they don't float away because <laughs> that's a real concern. <laughs> Aside from just their tool use and their clever use of their environment, you know, they also like hold hands, which is the cutest thing ever. Uh, but yeah, they'll, they'll grab their mate's hand because they don't want their mate to float away. Because their main their main form of resting in the ocean is just floating on their backs like little boats, yeah, fuzzy cute little boats. But of course, they uh, want to stay together with their mate. They'll link hands together so they can be two ships in an ocean of love, and it's adorable. Yeah, you just all you have to do is you put your baby in a bunch of kelp. Yep. So it doesn't float away and then you can hold hands with your mate and just float around. It yeah. seems ideal. <laughs> they do also carry their, their young like on their tummies, uh, mm, you know, just keeping them safe. But if they need to like get some food, like, you know, go hunting, they, there needs to be some way to keep the baby from floating away. They also use the kelp forests for themselves. They'll like tangle them up, the, tangle themselves up in the kelp so they don't float away uh, and while they're resting. So... Yeah, they, they have a keen sense of sort of naval protocol. Uh, they, yeah. it, But there's some kind of interesting observational evidence that uh, seems to indicate that otter intelligence goes even deeper than what we may think. So uh, sea otters are not really easily available for research. They're not in a lot of zoos. Uh, you know, they're not, it's not some, an animal that you can really sort of post up next to and observe for long periods of time. So it's, it's a little difficult to research, but we have been able to do more studies on other species of otters that are more common in zoos, uh, such as smooth coated otters. So they are not sea otters, they're freshwater otters found in Southeast Asia and India. And they hunt cooperatively and will copy each other when presented with a novel problem, such as food stuck in Tupperware that must be open. Mm. So uh, when researchers present them with a Tupperware puzzle with some tasty food stuck inside Tupperware that either pulls open or, or unscrews open, uh, they will learn from each other. So it might take them a while to figure out. But once one of them's figured it out, a lot of them will quickly get it because they've copied the one that finally figured it out. And the young otters are really fast at that. So the young uh, are definitely quicker learners than the older otters, and they will copy their peers much more quickly to open up the Tupperware. That's like young humans who are like, oh, yeah, I know how to use TikTok. It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> and then the older humans are like, I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. A, a Tupperware? A TikTok? What? A tacto? It's not, it's not a shell? 
Yeah. Now, now what's a tic tac toe? It's like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The older otters are like, this shell, it's like plasticky and like it doesn't crack. Like, I just don't even know how to deal with this. Oh my gosh, mom, like, it's called Tupperware. Get it together. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. To, I love. You're so embarrassing. Yeah, just imagine these young otters rolling their eyes, clickety clacking on their little their little shell phone uh, TikToks, like. like <laughs> um, but uh, and and there's even though this study has not been done with sea otters, there is some anecdotal evidence uh, that seems to indicate they are also much more intelligent than perhaps we give them credit for. So at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, an otter named Kit amuses herself by creating her own puzzles. So she has a plastic board with a number of holes in it that I, I guess is just sort of one of these like little enrichment toys. But she takes it a step further by putting a shrimp on top of it, diving underneath it, and trying to figure out how to grab the shrimp from underneath this board. Uh, but every time she ends up getting it, and it's kind of a game of reverse whack-a-mole because there are these little holes and she'll like put a paw up to try to grab the shrimp wherever <laughs> it is. And when she gets it, instead of just eating the shrimp, she puts it back on top of the board and dives under to try again. So this Aww. is not just a feeding activity. Uh, this is her little game that she's set up for self-enrichment. That's so cute. My cat does something like that. We like to play with twisty ties. Yes. Two cats, <laughs> they're sisters. Um, and one of them, if you throw the twisty tie, it will just like chase it, get it. Like then you throw it again, she chases it, gets it. But the other one, Poppy Seed, if you throw Aww. the twist tie, she'll go behind like four different chairs so that she has to jump through them in order to get it. She, like, makes it more complicated for yeah. herself. It's very cute. She's got to up the challenge. Like, you know, when you... She could be an otter, yeah. <laughs> I think it, there is something to that because if you are a, a complex animal who's intelligent and you have food readily available to you, like, I'm sure you feed your cats, you don't make them subsist in the wild on their own. <laughs> and these, these otters yeah. in the zoo are, are fed and taken care of, but they still need that intellectual stimulation. So cats love to play. And this otter, probably in the absence of having to find her own food and figure out how to crack open her own food, which I'm sure the zoo probably also provides enrichment activities. But, you know, it's a cushy life. And so she's got to introduce an element of, of fun and games into it. Yeah, I think humans can definitely relate to that. Yeah, uh, very strongly. <laughs> I think um, sometimes we're also sort of in denial about animal intelligence, especially when it makes us uncomfortable, such as the intelligence of farm animals and animals that we like to eat. And I'm I'm definitely not coming from a high horse because I personally am not a vegetarian. Uh, but I cannot deny that we do underestimate the intelligence of animals that we consume as food. And one such animal are cows. So cows may not be the smartest of barnyard animals. I think that probably goes to pigs. Um, but that does not mean that they are mindless, grass-munching, sort of uh, empty vessels of meat. <laughs> uh they have performed really well at memory tasks when it comes to locating quality food. 
they can quickly remember a good food location or landmark within a day and remember that association for up to 48 days, which I think might actually be better than my memory sometimes when it comes to sort of spatial <laughs> navigation. And they also have a secret social life. They often have a preferred cow friend they like to hang out with and eat with. So a little more complicated than I think is always comfortable to think about considering that we farm them. Yeah, that's really, really good to remember. Um, I think, again, like from my perspective, pretty much all animals have have something like that. Even that's legible to us that we can see as intelligence um, if we just look carefully. Yeah. And then also on top of that, probably a lot of things that we just don't appreciate because we don't live their lives. Yeah. Um, I want to plug. I have a really a poem that I really love about cows. Yeah. Uh, go for it's it. by Lydia. It's by Lydia Davis. It's just called The Cows. But it's about their movements and how they arrange themselves in space. And she makes it seem very intelligent and beautiful, uh, which it is if you look at it the right way, I think. Um, so, yeah, if you want to think a little deeper about cows, that poem is great. And ironically excited about cow poetry now. <laughs> great. I'll send you a copy. Thank you. But yeah, and in fact, they have recently been found that they can be trained to use the toilet. So by rewarding cows with food for peeing in a special cow toilet uh, and then also spritzing them with a sprinkler when they go outside the toilet, which I don't think hurts them, but they don't like it. It's kind of like when you spray a cat with a spray bottle. They do not like that. Right. It's not appreciated. Uh, researchers able to toilet train the cows. So the cows were able to open and close the gate to the bathroom all by themselves, go do their business and come right out. Which, wow. uh, yeah, I know it's, it's, you don't, you kind of don't think of a cow as being capable of it. Our perception of them is they're big, dumb, messy, uh, and without really, you know, much goals in life other than to eat grass and, you know, pass gas. <laughs> yeah, I think that that perception seems really new to me too. Cause if you think about all the older cultures and the, you know, non- um, U.S. cultures that like valorize cows and also even like European like Renaissance paintings of cows. They're such beautiful, amazing, peaceful animals. Um, yeah. I think the fact the factory farming system has kind of forced us to look at them in this particular way. But I'm glad that people are starting to research their abilities. And I think I saw a study last year where cows could use VR goggles or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I um, saw that too. <laughs> yeah. Cows and VR. Yeah. Yeah, cows of the future. Yeah, I th and I think that was like to see if they could improve cows' quality of life through VR, which is, right. it's interesting. And I'm not against that kind of research, but it's also like, maybe we should just give cows a little more space outside. Yeah, right. It's kind of <laughs> spooky. Like, should we yeah. put cows in the matrix? Yeah, so like that a we cow matrix. To, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. Actually, I think I would have to say that I don't like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that either. It's... Because yeah. then you're going to need like a Kiamu Reeves to be Neo oh, wow. and, you know, <laughs> free all the cows from the cow matrix. I was waiting for it to, to land that one. <laughs> that was really good. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, the hope for the cow toilet is that it will be more sanitary for the cows. It allowed them to keep their living areas clean, giving them some autonomy over their environment. 
as well as reducing mm. ammonia emissions from their urine, which can be really bad when it sort of gets into the water cycle. It can like contribute to acid rain and runoff that can destroy sort of wetlands and coastal areas. So uh, cow toilets actually could be a vast improvement uh, for for farms. But I think like that would still, it's just one piece of maybe completely revamping our factory farm system. Because, you know, even if you're not a vegetarian, which I'm personally not a, a vegetarian, but I'm still extremely uncomfortable with factory farming. I think that if we're going to eat animals, we should at least have the decency to give them a good life, not just sort of basic humane treatment, but actually good quality of life where they can go outside and have fun cow times. Yeah, totally. I think that's another kind of upshot of the stuff we're talking about here. Like the more we learn about animals and how they like to enjoy life and all of the different things that they do with their days, like it's only logical and like, you know, moral <laughs> that we should try to help them have lives like that, especially like you said, if we're going to eat them at the end of it. Um, I feel like we kind of owe it to them. Yeah, exactly. um, I am a vegetarian. So I have a very small soapbox, but I also understand that people make different decisions about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think if you ask your average person, they would agree that they want an an uh, the animals that they interact with to have good lives. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think and it's something that would require some amount of sacrifice for our own just immediate wants. Like probably it would require our... Uh, a, cutting our meat consumption because we simply cannot sustain sort of the massive magnitude of cows we keep in factory farm settings. But I, right. I think that in the long run, I think that kind of thing would also be much more beneficial to humans because I don't think factory farms are good for human workers. They put smaller farms no. out of business. Uh, they're not they're not great on workers' rights and workers' safety. We saw that during the pandemic. And, uh, totally. it's, and it's really bad for the environment as well. So I think that when we open our minds to maybe respecting animals we see as dumb or unimportant or expendable, we may actually yeah. kind of be able to introspect a little more about how, well, maybe we're viewing this as an inevitable thing, but if we change it, we may actually improve human life as well. Yeah as well as sort of, I think, our moral imperative to make sure the animals that we have in our care are, you know, living living good, comfortable, and enjoyable lives, even if we decide to use them as meat eventually. Yeah, I think that's totally true and a really good point. Like, we're all connected, especially now, and humans make so many decisions that affect other species. Um, it is really good to think about, <laughs> to think yeah. them through in that way and not not just think about like the profit motive or whatever it's yeah. like we're used to having at the top of our minds. Yeah, exactly. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. One of my favorite kinds of animal secrets is when you don't even realize it's an animal or that it's even alive. So uh, there are lots of animals that like to play dead, and we've talked about some of them on the show. We've talked about uh, we, we've talked about possums a lot. I love love possums. Love their incredible playing dead trick. We've talked about hognose snakes. They also love to play dead. But I think sometimes it's like, it seems like a fairly complicated behavior that you would expect from something like, okay, yeah, a, a possum is pretty intelligent. Like, you know, even a hognose snake, it's like they've, they've got a sizable brain and they can, they can you know, uh, use this to their advantage to be able to fake out a predator. But uh, you wrote a recent article about antlion larvae who will play dead, which to me is very interesting because it is, you know, when I think about insects, they're one of the more simple animals. No judgment. I love insects. But then in, you take that and you even take like their larva. It's like this very complicated behavior in such a simple little package. Totally. I love insects. I write about insects a lot. And part of the reason why is because they're so surprising. Like you said, we have this image of them as simple and they are very small and their brains are often very small. But um, while people, I think, used to think of them as interesting study subjects because they thought of them as like automatons where they're programmed to do certain things and they have like a limited number of moves, you know, like a video game right. character or something. Um, we're learning that they're actually much more complex and interesting than that um, and that predator species like praying mantises um, are so complicated in the ways that they are able to catch bugs. And then meanwhile, prey species like antlions are actually really complicated in the ways that they avoid being eaten. Yeah. Yeah. With these antlion larvae. Yeah. Some of them can play dead for over an hour, which is very difficult to imagine. Like if you're in a, let's say like a zombie situation and you need to pretend to be dead, like none of us could do it for an hour. It would be way too hard. You got to breathe. You got to. My nose would immediately be itching. Like if I had to play dead. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, I, but I have to itch my nose. I'd be dead in like two minutes because I'd have to itch my nose. Yeah. Like just thinking exactly. about having to itch my nose makes me want to itch my nose. 
Yeah. So, so the antlion larvae would all survive the zombie invasion and we would not. Wow. Well, yeah. You know, stick that in your pipe and smoke at humanity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it's, I, I think this is something that it, it touches upon this greater theme of like you see this animal, it looks, it doesn't look like much on the surface. Like an antlion larva, it looks sort of like a creepy little sort of fuzzy, spiky, almost like, uh, I don't know, like living tiny pine cone. <laughs> they, they don't, you know, they don't, they don't look like much. Um, but then they have this incredibly complex behavior of playing dead. And then they bank on yeah. the fact that they sort of don't look like much to uh, kind of be bypassed by some predator. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this study was really cool because um, like even the researchers, um, you know, they didn't, mean to find this out they were trying to study something different um and they just had picked up a bunch of antlion larvae because they wanted to weigh them and they thought it was going to be really hard because they thought they'd be skittering around yeah but as soon as they put them on the scale the larvae were just like "Uh, we're dead (laughs) and the researchers were like we didn't know you could do this yeah and so they decided to sort of look into it and they found some really impressive um time spans that they could do it for as well as the fact that the time span really varies so different larvae at different times will play dead for very very different amounts of time because it's kind of a group survival strategy where like maybe like at least some will survive even if others can't can't do it for long enough yeah yeah and that almost makes me think it's similar to you know the the kind of like gambling thing of of if you are always consistently playing dead for a consistent amount of time, that behavior becomes easier to predict as a predator. Whereas if it's very variable, the predator can't figure it out, can't predict it. So it's like with slot machines or gambling, if you can predict how the slot machine works, you basically can win at the slot machine. But if you Mm -hmm. can't predict it, it will continue to trick you the whole time you're there and you'll lose all your money. Not speaking from experience. Uh, <laughs> I do like how one of the researchers described it as cute, how they uh, seem to demonstrate an abundance of caution when they're playing dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm dead. Don't worry about it for hours. <laughs> I love talking to researchers, especially insect researchers, because they have often such fondness for their subject. Yes. Like anybody does when they've worked <laughs> with something for a long time. And they will call things cute that you would never think of. But yeah. when you when you do pay some attention, you're like, yeah, that is cute. Yes. Yeah. No, that's I, I think that is to me an important message to get across in this podcast is things that kind of look gooey or weird. It's like, I, yeah, but if you get to know them, they're they're charming. <laughs> totally. Totally. Uh, sometimes animals don't even seem like they're alive. And it's not even that they're playing dead, but their physical appearance is not what you would expect to find in a living animal. Uh, And one example of this, which I think is, it's really funny, it's this um, recent discovery made uh, in Japan is a isopod that looks like a piece of sushi. Marine isopods are these creepy crawly arthropods that can either be small or really huge, like puppy sized. There are these tongue-eating louses, which we've talked about before on the show. Uh, They kind of look like overgrown roly-polies or pill bugs. I I think it depends on which region you're in, what you call them, but like roly-polies, pill bugs. Maybe some people call them 
like uh, potato bugs. I'm not really sure what all the different uh, names are, but uh, and, and the reason they look like giant pill bugs is that uh, pill bugs are also isopods. So they're terrestrial isopods mm. while there are also marine isopods. Usually marine isopods are this pale ghostly white. They're a little bit creepy looking maybe, uh, especially ones that peek out of a fish's mouth, just like, you know, like, mm. haha, I'm, I'm eating your tongue, which we actually talked about on the last episode. Off the coast of Japan's northern island, Hokkaido, one of these was found that was pink and beautiful and it looked exactly like a piece of salmon sushi it looks delicious <laughs> yeah i'm looking at this picture now um if it were you know in a little tray i yeah. would probably think it was a piece of sushi yeah in a, in a tray with like some of that little like plastic grass uh yeah it, it yeah. looks it looks delicious it looks it, it has that you know white banding across it which is actually it's it's segments but it looks right. pink and uh it's it's like and the fact that its belly is is white it makes it look like it's a piece of salmon sitting on top of a ball of rice which i think is what's so funny about this is clearly there's no advantage to this uh, isopod looking like a piece of sushi this is an example of complete coincidence where we see this thing and it looks like something entirely different, but it it has not evolved to look like sushi. It would be so funny if it had. Like right. If it was an isopod who had it evolved, like specifically in the context of like the whole foods, prepared food section. Right, right. And it just like made its life there. But yeah, I see what you're saying. It's like preying on humans somehow. We eat it and then it becomes an endoparasite inside us. That's a really cool idea for a movie yeah yeah the the secret sushi killers the reason this one is this beautiful pink color and not its normal ghostly white pale color is thought to probably be its diet so the aquarium caretakers mm -hmm. think this unusual color is because whatever fish that this little guy was uh a parasite on may have had more uh more pink coloration or red coloration and so for some reason, this this little guy was getting this from its diet. Uh, it could also potentially be a mutation. We know that with lobsters, uh, they, there are a lot of color mutations, a change in the uh, structure of the proteins in their exoskeleton that can turn them in from bright blue to sort of an orangey orange color, which, uh, you know, lobsters are not orange. They do not look like cooked lobsters in nature. They look like they have this muddy brown coloration. Right. But yeah, it's the <laughs> I just I just love that it's like it is seafood, but not the kind of seafood you think it is. Yeah, no, it's very it's very fun to think about and look at. I encourage everybody to to <laughs> click through and look at this little guy. Speaking of something that is seafood but deceptive is, uh, it, I mean, just imagine you're in a fancy restaurant and a chef just drops this big gray craggly rock in front of you and you know kind of looks at you expectantly and you're just like okay thanks for the rock i guess <laughs> then the chef takes out a big butcher's knife slices into the rock and it reveals like this marbled flesh inside you're not on an alien planet, you are on Earth, and you are lucky enough to try some meat rock known as Pyrrha chilensis. 
So this is extremely cool. Yeah, it, it looks like it, it looks like a Photoshop or or an alien because it, it literally looks like a rock that you slice into, and there's a bunch of sort of reddish orange organs inside. And this thing is actually alive, and it is a tunicate, also known as a sea squirt, a much cuter name than tunicate, but. Mm -hmm. uh, we've actually talked about tunicates a little bit uh, before on the show, how they start off life as a weird little tadpole creature and then they attach themselves to a rock and as an adult they become completely sessile or immobile and uh, they will grow this sort of hard cellulose-like tunicate uh, or tunate shell. Uh, it's not really a shell, it's like this... It's actually really weird because it is structurally very similar to plant cellulose, but it is uh, obviously coming from an animal. And so for the this meat rock tunicate, it is a little different from some of the marine tunicates we've talked about before because a lot of tunicates are these really beautiful, bright, vibrant colors. They look almost like plants or like some kind of alien trumpet with bright purples and yellows. Uh, but Pyura chilensis, it just looks like a big gray weird rock uh, until you cut yeah. into it. Yeah, it's really surprising to see the inside. It's really shocking. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, looks, it, looks a, it, it looks completely alien or completely made up. Looks sort of like a, a Cronenberg creation from one of his movies. <laughs> Uh, it's called puree in Spanish, and it's commonly found off the coast of Chile. So they're often used in cuisine because those chunks of meat inside the quote-unquote rock exterior are apparently quite tasty, uh, both raw and cooked. Uh, apparently it tastes like a stronger sea urchin with a sort of cilantro soapy taste, which... I'm not going to judge because I've never actually eaten it. But to me, soapy doesn't sound like something I'd want to eat. Uh, but, you know, if it is used enough, it, it, it must it must have a, it must have some some good flavor going on there. It's just so funny to think about. Like, it's such a human thing. Um, apparently also an otter thing to just like pick something up, crack it open and be like, can I eat that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something yeah. we share with the otters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there was there was a YouTube video of some guy like cutting into these things and like stabbing these things. And it was actually taken down for graphic content, which I think is a, is kind of funny cuz there are all sorts of YouTube videos of people like gutting fish and you know, it's like it's right. the same thing, but somehow meat rock uh was a little too far <laughs> for uh YouTube standards. <laughs> totally. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, like most tunicates, the this this meat rock starts off life as actually a mobile little tadpole thing uh, that lives in the ocean, and then it'll attach itself to a rock. And in fact, like with a lot of tunicates, it goes through this th this metamorphosis where it actually depletes its brain size and increases Whoa. its stomach capacity. And so it starts, it really kind of um, emphasizes the ability to suck food in through the siphon. It's like what people do on Thanksgiving, right? They yeah. They their brain so that they can exactly. eat Exactly. 
Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, like, brain off, mouth open. That's my philosophy. That's my Thanksgiving philosophy. And this is (laughs) this little guy's philosophy. And then it grows into this this rock-like creature and that hard exterior called a tunican, uh, which, like I mentioned earlier, it, it's made out of a weird animal version of cellulose. Uh, and then it, underneath that layer of tunicin is an, a, a sort of a skin and then muscle and organs. <laughs> so very strange. Um, and also even weirder and more alien is its blood is actually clear and full of vanadium, which is a rare chemical element whose role in the tunicate's circulatory system is really unclear. We don't know why. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I can't figure out the anatomy of it. I tried, and I looked for diagrams, (laughs) but it's like you cut into it, and there's just all these like meaty chunks, and I'm assuming one of the chunks is like the pharynx, maybe the digestive tract, Probably one of them's the gonads, uh, which mm-hmm. they're a hermaphroditic, uh, which allows them to reproduce asexually or sexually, which is handy because if you're basically living your life as a immobile rock and you happen to right. pick a neighborhood that no other tunicates set up shop in, you're out of luck. Right. So you got to be like, well, right. it's just me and myself and it's, you know, got to got to make babies somehow. <laughs> This is like a good challenge for me. As I said before, I really try to see the like cool, smart aspects of every creature. And the farther away you get from like the human lifestyle and body plan, the more of an exercise in imagination that can be. Um, and this guy is just like, I I have on faith um, to me in my heart. He is very smart. Meat rock. Talented. Well. Yeah, but how? Like, what's his deal? Well, he's. Just being a meat rock is very impressive. But like, what else? I mean, he or she, hard to, hard and often, imagine. often both. Like he, th- this this little thing. It's like, well, it's not always that little. Actually, it can get to be kind of a sizable rock uh, shape, mm-hmm. sort of thingy. It it seems to like it, it's one of these weird things where it kind of is Benjamin Buttons because it starts out life with much more brain power, much more of a nervous system mm-hmm. that it sort of ends up at. So. Maybe that's mm-hmm. that was the good decision was getting rid of getting rid of its ability to think and getting rid of the brain. Yeah, investing brain. it all into the ability to like suck food in and filter it out and just live mm-hmm. good life as a little gray rock. Maybe that's maybe that was <laughs> that's the wisdom the whole the whole time. Yeah, good to learn from. That's a really good point. <laughs> Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. 
Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So one of my favorite of the sort of articles that you write are on these mysterious glowing animals that keep popping up. And it is something that I've been following a little bit on the podcast. And it's just it seems like every month or two, there's a new animal. (laughs) They're like, this one glows too. So we're talking about biofluorescence in mammals. And there, there are a lot of animals that biofluoresce, like reptiles and arthropods and marine animals. But no, like seeing biofluorescence in mammals is, or it was and up until recently, very unexpected. Can I just give a, a little breakdown of the yeah. differences between these kinds of things? Yes. Yeah. So there's a couple of different kinds of of glowing when it comes to animals. Um, so the one that we're talking about right now that has been observed in mammals recently and then before that in amphibians and some reptiles is, is UV fluorescence. So when you put these uh, animals under a UV light or expose them to strong UV light, um, they have pigments or other um, chemicals or molecules in their fur or their, you know, carapaces or wherever that kind of um, transfer form the light that's being absorbed into a different color of light and emit it within the visible spectrum. So it's like if you are at like a black light party and you have a glow stick or you have like a white t-shirt, your white t-shirt is doing that same thing. It's like taking in light that's invisible to you and emitting it as like a really bright blue color that you can see. So that's what those animals are doing. And then a lot of the underwater glowing from marine creatures, like marine creatures are much better at actually creating their own light. Yeah, um, which is which is so, a bioluminescence, not biofluorescence. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So there's two different kinds. Um, we're talking about biofluorescence. And some people argue that we shouldn't call it biofluorescence because it's not like a living property. It's like a material property. But I think it's okay because uh, we're talking about a material <laughs> property in a living thing yeah yeah, it's really it's really wild yeah i mean uh yeah so so marine life you're right absolutely right like there's a lot of bioluminescence so that that's the kind of thing you see in anglerfish or zooplankton uh diatoms sometimes um or or even like things like foxfire fungus will bioluminesce uh, I think that's the active for bioluminous. Yeah, but, yeah, I think it is. Too. Um, 
but that is where the glow is produced by a chemical reaction and it is visible with the naked human eye typically. Uh, biofluorescence, right. like you mentioned, uh, is actually the animal's skin or fur or whatever, or it doesn't have to be an animal. It can even be minerals or plants absorbing yeah. UV light and then re-emitting it at a different wavelength. And we can only see that when we are basically pumping in uh, UV light and then seeing it yeah. re-emitted in a longer wavelength than it was originally and there there are also actually to even get more confusing there are marine animals that bio uh fluoresce and so yeah, bioluminous uh so yeah. sharks uh do not are not bioluminescent they don't provide their own chemical reaction that makes them glow but they do biofluoresce so they will glow under uv light and there's some debate about like what this does like is shark are sharks uh using this as social communication um right but even stranger is the fact that we're just finding more and more mammals uh who biofluoresce which you know a reminder that is the uv light thing so <laughs> there is an ever-growing list i'm just gonna go through uh some of the ones that i have compiled uh, so one of the more recent ones is the spring hair, which you just wrote about in the New York Times, which has maybe one of the coolest patterns of biofluorescence because it seems to like be these orange and pink glowing swirls, like some kind of Alice in Wonderland yeah. creature. Yeah, it's like, it's like a Pokemon. Um, <laughs> I think they're really cool. Uh, that's my favorite one, too. That's the most recent one that's been sort of like officially described. It's mostly one research group that's really digging into this right now, although even like people from zoos and people in their backyards are doing some like less rigorous experimentation with it or exploration with it. But the spring hair is amazing. And the patchiness of the pattern is really cool because like when you're talking about a material property, people who don't think that the question for a lot of people is like, does this fluorescence have any utility for the animal like can the animals does it help the animals see each other or actually like see each other less well or be seen by predators less well because you can imagine like if your fur is absorbing uv light and then emitting it at a different wavelength like maybe you're actually hiding from a predator that can see uv light and would otherwise see this light reflected off of you um so it could be actually like a camouflage mechanism but people really argue about whether or not that's true and the thing about the spring hair having like a patchy pattern is that some of like the hair is not um different in other ways right like why would some of the hairs be uh fluorescing and some of them not if it was yeah just the, 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 hair, the hair h-i-r the h-i-r on yeah. the h-i-r <laughs> yeah, the fur yeah the fur is all the same and so if the pattern is different but the fur is otherwise the same then maybe the pattern does have some sort of utility or else like why would it be there uh so that's really exciting to me and different hairs h-a-r-e have different patterns um that is really well, cool kind of cool yeah, that is so cool. And it's it kind of makes me think of sort of the, the shark biofluorescence where they also have these different patterns. So uh, some researchers are wondering if this is a social thing, like a way to identify mm. different individuals. But it's hard to know because we would first that they must be able to actually see it. And there, I think there's some evidence that shark eyes are able to see 
uh, UV light, but I don't think we know. We we don't necessarily know about the spring hair yet. Uh, right. Which, by the way, is an absolutely adorable animal. A uh, spring so hair cute. is a it's a large rodent that looks like you crossed a kangaroo with a mouse, and uh, mm-hmm. they and they actually live in uh, the southern tip of Africa. So. Uh, they are not a marsupial, but they do kind of look like a marsupial. Um, but what, I mean, that's one of the weird things, though, about these glowing animals. And I don't know if this is just an artifact of the way the research is going. Like, are we testing this on more marsupials and monotremes or something? Mm-hmm. Because it seems like a lot of these animals that are biofluorescing are either monotremes, meaning like platypuses or echidnas, or are... Uh, um, marsupials like wombats, Tasmanian devils, uh, bilbies, possums, bandicoots. Just, yeah, it's it's so strange. I think I can I can answer at least part of that question. The flippant answer is that Australia is really weird. All the animals in Australia are really weird. I don't know <laughs> what they're getting up to at any given time. Um, but that's 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 not my real answer, which is that um, the group that is studying this really rigorously thinks that the things that these animals have in common so far are that they are uh, like crepuscular nocturnal. So they're right. like active at night and in the evening and at dawn, which is like also a time when the light conditions are different, obviously, than during the day. Um, and that they're not predators, like they're they're prey animals mostly, or at least they have predators. So that kind of also supports the idea that maybe they are using this to hide somehow. Um, the Australia thing is because, so outside of that group, that is doing like a little bit of more rigorous experimentation. There are places that have done just sort of like shine a black light all around in the museum and see what happens. Yeah. And one of those people, one of those groups was uh, an Australian museum that did a lot of light shining on their like taxidermed um, bilbies and stuff and found a lot of glowing, but it hasn't been sort of rigorously um, verified. So there's clues that maybe these Australian mammals all have this, but it hasn't really been shown yet. The ones that have it has been shown for um, more definitively are platypus, the flying squirrel, or at least um, some species of flying squirrel, some species of opossum, yes, uh, and the spring hare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I, I think this is so interesting, and it's one of those things where once you kind of open up that Pandora's box of shining black lights on mammals to see which one of them glows, it's like, well, we have to keep going until we've tested it on every animal. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. it could be like we may be seeing some pattern but until we know which animals do this it's like well it could be that we just haven't we haven't uh shown black lights on, on enough animals and I, I feel like one of the difficulties is you can't just walk up to a nocturnal animal with a black light and be mm-hmm. like could you hold still while i see if you're glowing because they're not gonna <laughs> they're not gonna react kindly to that in fact, it seems like a lot of the tests mm-hmm. are either done on already dead animals that have been taxidermied or people just yeah. going out to the roads yeah. at night and shining a black light on roadkill, which I love it, but it's one of the more questionable activities you can be doing <laughs> as a researcher. I feel like if a police officer stopped you and you're it's like, well, what are you doing? It's like, Oh, well, I just, you know, I'm shining this black light on a uh, roadkill to see if, uh, you know, some of them glow. Right. You need a cover story. You're getting arrested for yeah, that, but sure. <laughs> I like the spring hair study because they I don't think they could do this with the platypus one. But for that one, they were able to um, 
go to a zoo and find some spring hairs and like give them peanuts and take pictures of them. Um, so you've got all Aww. these really cute like little model poses of the very patchy, <laughs> beautiful, glowing spring hairs eating a peanut. Yeah. Um, yep. Rather than these poor mangled roadkill yeah. glowing yeah, animals exactly. that. <laughs> Totally. It's a smushed, smushed platypus that, that glows a beautiful color. Um, but just to kind of give everyone a sense of the the magnitude of how many of these animals have shown some signs of biofluorescence um, and what they look like, uh, here here's a probably incomplete list I've compiled of who's glowing and what they kind of look like. So uh, sort of bluish green glow all over their bodies. It seems like platypus uh, and wombat, maybe weakly. Uh, bright white glowing spines seems to happen with echidnas. Uh, Tasmanian devils, which are interesting because they are... Now, I, I they may have some predators, but they're right, mostly the predator themselves. And they... Mm-hmm get into conflicts with each other, but not as much with other animals. But they do ha- seem to have some biofluorescence, mm. especially around their faces, um, which kind of, it's like they have like blue highlighted features. Uh, flying squirrels uh, tend to have glowing underbelly. So there are a few species of flying squirrels that seem to biofluoresce and they have this like pink glowing underbelly, which is adorable. Greater bilbies seem to have glowing white ears. And then ghost bats, uh, very appropriately named, seem to have glowing yellow wings. Uh, Again, just to reiterate, this is all under UV light, so we can't see this with the naked eye. Um, Striped possum uh, may have some sort of highlighter pink glowing abilities. And crefts gliders, which are sort of like a sugar glider or flying squirrel in appearance, seem to have glowing blue bellies, which I I think is interesting because you have the flying squirrels, which have glowing pink bellies, and then another glider and its belly glows blue. Um, And then these, I I saw some indication that they do glow, but I couldn't find like what color they glow. But long-nosed bandicoots, antichinus, Mm, and tree kangaroos, maybe. (laughs) With a big maybe. There's like a really old... um, observation of tree kangaroos i don't think they've like replicated that partially because tree kangaroos are very 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 rare and i think like weren't they recently like thought to have been they were thought to have been very completely extinct and then like recently they kind of found some wild population or am i getting that confused with another animal oh i don't know i'm not up on my tree kangaroos but i hope they're okay you're not up to date on your tree kangaroo trivia (laughs) no yeah, no, there there are uh, there are certain species of tree kangaroos which were thought to have been extinct up until 2018, and that was the Wandawoy mm. uh, tree kangaroo. Um, so yeah, it's uh, they're elusive, so we don't know, we don't know their glowing secrets. But yeah, it's just it's it's wild to me how there are so many animals that's like you know we've never tried shining a black, we've never taken these animals to a rave in their lives. And so we don't know if they glow like someone at Coachella under a blacklight. So (laughs) there's really only one solution, which is to do like a sort of Noah's Ark style rave. Yeah. Yeah. One pair of every species in the same place. And we just go for it. Exactly. And everybody gets like a wristband. 
Yeah, the most exclusive rave in the world, the, the Noah's Ark grave. I love that. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is really curious. And, and as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Kara, but we still don't know exactly why they glow like this. The, the answer has yet to been definitively proven or even thoroughly yeah. studied. Yeah, nobody really knows. And a lot of people argue that there couldn't possibly be a reason yeah, um, it's actually it's one of my favorite types of scientific question, which is the like really esoteric one that still inspires ferocious, angry debate. Yes, I love it when biologists get mad. <laughs> I know it's really fun. People have uh, often the people who, you know, discover this have maybe a bit of a vested interest in it being um, having some sort of use, although, of course, they're also rigorous scientists and they want to prove it for sure. So often I'll talk to the authors of the papers and they'll have a bunch of theories and then I'll talk to somebody outside and they'll say like, no way, you know, <laughs> or yeah. like, like we have to do so much more work to even get close to that. But uh, people have come up with some really good theories. What are some of those theories that you've heard without, you know, this is clearly we don't know yet whether any of these right. are true without further study. Totally. So um, one of the ones is what I mentioned before um, in terms of hiding from predators through camouflage. So making themselves actually sort of counterintuitively less visible, um, because obviously, like if you saw a platypus, even in the moonlight, you wouldn't see it glowing. It would just look like a normal platypus unless you happen to have a black light, because as you mentioned, you were a freaky researcher looking for kill <laughs> with a black light. Um, so I think one of the kind of confusing things that you have to remember when you're reading studies like this is like the pictures that we show to um, like demonstrate the phenomenon. That's not what you would see in real life without a black light. No. It's not what another platypus would see. So you kind of have to like move one step beyond that and think about, um, okay, so what would another platypus see or what would a platypus predator see? And a lot of predators, yeah, can see UV light much better than people can. And so it's possible that a platypus that would normally be reflecting this UV light so that it was visible is instead absorbing it right. and transmitting a different frequency. So the predator actually maybe can see it a little bit worse. So that's one possibility. It's sort um, of like the wearing the black turtleneck in a heist movie because black will mm -hmm. absorb light. And so, you know, when you sh try to shine a light off of a black turtleneck, uh, the museum guards don't see and you can steal the Hope <laughs> diamond. And you can shine a black light on all the specimens in the, in the downstairs rooms, yeah. Right. Um, or steal the hope diamond, or both, if you're having and, like a really good day. And because, because these animals are often crepuscular or nocturnal, you're not getting a huge amount of like UV light at night at all. Right. So it's it, that makes it more mysterious where it's, you know, they're not they're not absorbing huge amounts of UV light. We can only see it because we sort of pump them with this like little... Right. mini uv light ray that makes them you know leak out all of these longer wavelengths of visible light that we can see after we are just like pumping them chock full of uv light yeah another theory is that like as we know uv light can be kind of harmful to yes. cells um and so some people think that maybe by sort of taking it in and transforming it the fur is protecting like the vulnerable skin from being exposed to uv almost like Ooh, i love that yeah. I, I would love some cool. kind of like sunscreen that also biofluoresces so I can like during That's the day protect my redhead, <laughs> protect like my redhead skin from the sun and then at night go to rave and it's like ns, 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 party all night, yeah. not yeah. get skin cancer during the day. <laughs> <laughs> 
One of the coolest examples that I've seen lately, I wrote this up like last month for the New York Times, um, was there's this these species of paper wasps in in. Uh, oh, I saw your Vietnam, article on that. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Um, it's mostly the like coolest ones are in Vietnam, but they're found in other places as well. And the um, larvae of these wasps, you know, spin their own cocoons out of silk and kind of stay in there while they're metamorphosizing. Um, yeah. And so, or metamorphizing. And they found that, again, by accident, because of their UV lights, um, found that the silk of the cocoon is really, really strongly UV fluorescent, like way stronger than anything yet discovered in nature. Um, yeah, it's like this and, bright green. It looks like, I mean, it, it almost looks brighter than a glow stick to me. Yeah, it's super bright. It's almost like a, like if a tree was growing like a tennis ball. You're like, well, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. And uh one of the researchers said to me that his theory, and again, like it's this really requires further testing, is that um, when the larvae are metamorphizing into wasps, uh, they need, you know, photo period signals. They need to know how long the days are uh, because that helps them figure out like when it's time to do certain things. So they need to be have access to the light conditions of the forest, but they maybe want to be protected from UV. So by having these little glowing, um, you know, not glowing, but biofluorescent cocoon caps, maybe it's like keeping the UV out while still letting the light inside. So almost like you have, um, like, I don't know, like a little LED in your room that like tells you when it's light out without yeah. exposing you to the light. Like maybe you're a vampire or something and you need to know yeah. when it's daytime and when it's not, but you don't want to be exposed to the light. Having, so it's having like a... That windows treated with some kind of like uv protection like you get on sunglasses totally yeah exactly um and That's so to so us cool. it looks really fluorescent but to them it's like a protective but information giving thing yeah it's really cool which i think is it's like another one of these things that we have to we can't be so like you know anthrocentric or anthropocentric where yeah we uh we think in terms of like well they're glowing to us when we flash the, right. the the black light on it so it's so it must be have something to do with the glowing nature of this that gives them an advantage but could be completely unrelated to the fact that they yeah they uh biofluoresce it could have to do with like the way they absorb the uv light it could be thermoregulation yeah. uh yeah which is sometimes the case with like these there are these snakes that have this iridescence uh, to their scales, it's beautiful. And so you think, well, is this like uh, some kind of mate selection because it's so beautiful? Well, no, they don't care. Uh, it's probably more to do with the fact that structurally these scales are made so that they can absorb heat um, better such that they can thermoregulate, so not getting too cold and not getting too hot. So the fact that they look right. like magical fairy princess snakes is just incidental. Uh, but it's the, <laughs> right. it's the thermoregulation that's important. So Something similar could be going on with these UV patterns where it could, it could either be that it's helping them, you know, absorb UV rays either for their benefit or to protect them from the harm or, you know, for some kind of thermoregulation. Or it could be, um, could be completely incidental. So it could be that the structure of the, the proteins in the fur that like are biofluorescing just happen to biofluoresce but they they are structured in such a way that makes the fur like more protective for the animal or or healthier and in evolutionary biology this is 
typically referred to like as an evolutionary spandrel. So it's when mm. something happens in evolution, like there's some structure or some trait and it is incidental. So it's a byproduct of other structures that are necessary for an animal's evolutionary survival. And I think it comes from architecture, which I know a great deal less about, but I think it's basically when you have an, an archway, you have like the, these places where the arch meets the wall. And so it's like this chunk of basically unused space. So architects would often like decorate these, these spandrels with designs. And then people would sometimes wonder like, what is this? what is the structural purpose of this? And it's like, well, there's no structural purpose. It's just there because right. it has to be there because of the way the arch meets the wall. And so you might as well decorate it as an architect. So uh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's cool. So before we go, we have to answer the question from last week of guess who's talking. So Every week I play a mystery animal sound and you, the listener, and you, the guest, try to guess, hey, who's talking? Who the heck is that? And uh, just as a reminder, last week's hint is that its name sounds like a collaboration between a biologist, a heavy metal band, and a hairdresser. <laughs> Kind of sounds like a mandrake or a scary baby. It's actually, yeah, I, I think I know exactly what it is. It's uh, my cat, Peppercorn, when she wants to go outside. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> How did you get into my house to record Peppercorn? Yeah. Well, do you have any guesses other than Peppercorn? Okay, so you said a biologist, a metal band, and a hairdresser? Got together to name this thing. So it's probably like a bird with something weird on its head. Um, <laughs> but that's usually the answer. <laughs> um, the screaming mohawk parakeet is my guess. God, you are you're so close. You're a little bit off really? by like the phylum and actual animal but in terms of the name in terms of the actual name you're very close yeah. so this is actually the screaming hairy armadillo oh what is an armadillo it's an armadillo so this is found in south america and it is indeed an armadillo it is indeed hairy and it does in fact scream as you just heard if you pick one up they start shrieking uh, wow. And it is thought that this is sort of the like um, uh, car alarm effect uh, because they're not really that social. So this is not thought to be a warning call to other individuals in its species, but it's thought to either startle predators when they pick them up or to make a predator afraid that an even bigger predator is going to approach, which I think is a really interesting gambit we've seen in a few prey animals where they will just make a huge commotion. And then that freaks out the predator that's like, well, okay, I was trying to go in this sneakily, but if you're screaming, like something bigger might come and actually eat me while I'm trying to eat mm -hmm. you. Uh, mm -hmm. So <laughs> I think it'd work on me because uh, it's just, it's, it sounds like a demon baby. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I would definitely put it down if it did that. All right. And now on to this week's mystery animal sound. Here's a hint. Not so fast. This isn't who you think it is. Kara, do you have any guesses? This is a very sneaky and tricky one. So it sounds like that despite how it sounds, it is not an adorable small bird who will help me get dressed for the ball. <laughs> um, so no, I don't, I have no idea. I, I've been extremely sneaky with this one. I'm, I almost feel a little mean about it, but uh, I still will keep my lips tightly sealed until next week when we reveal the answer. And if you out there, listeners, think you know what this is, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com, creaturefeaturepod on Instagram, or creaturefeetpod on Twitter. That's F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T. That is something very different. Um, But Kara, thank you so much for joining me today uh, and for giving all your wisdom and insight uh, that usually I would have to go and read your articles to get. (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is in some ways more efficient in some ways probably a lot less efficient but i really (laughs) uh appreciate being invited on and i had a great time well where can people find all your awesome articles and where can people find you online yeah so i'm on twitter at cjgimo that's c-j-g-i-a-i-m-o um and then i uh write pretty frequently for the new york times and i'm working on this book for Atlas Obscura that won't be out for a while, but when it is, I will tell you where you can get it. I am excited for that. Uh, And, of course, I just told you where you can find the podcast online. You can find me online at Katie Golden on Twitter. I don't always tweet about animals, but when I do, it's they're really weird. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show and you leave a rating and review, I will just be grateful forever and ever i'll never forget it Uh, i actually do read all the reviews and i really appreciate all of them and thank you so much for to the space cossacks for their super awesome song exolumina creature features a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts like the one you just heard visit the iHeartRadio app apple Podcasts, or hey guess what i don't care where you listen to your favorite shows you can do it from inside a meat rock see if i care i don't judge you See you next Wednesday. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.